We have 18 smaller independent telcos in North Dakota. 15 of those are cooperatives. You're listening to episode 288 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Unless you've been to rural North Dakota, you probably imagine wide-sleeping plains dotted here and there with a herd of cattle or oil rigs. What most people don't realize is that rural North Dakota has some of the most extensive fiber optic networks in the country. Rural cooperatives and independent telecommunications companies have quietly been investing in North Dakota regional networks for years. In this interview, Christopher talks with Robin Anderson from National Information Solutions Cooperative, one of the many that have helped establish the state's incredible connectivity. Robin and Chris discuss how the rural areas of North Dakota came to have some of the best internet access in the country, the people behind the deployments, and what the experience is like for a smaller independent provider who sees the wisdom of rural investment. Now here's Christopher with Robin Anderson. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, and I'm speaking with Robin Anderson, the sales manager for National Information Solutions Cooperative in North Dakota. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. So let me just ask you briefly to tell us what the National Information Solutions Cooperative is before we get into how North Dakota has better internet access than the whole rest of the country. (laughs) So NISC, we provide an enterprise solutions for electric and um, telecom companies across the country. Actually started be 50 years ago this year, and we, we work with both electric utilities and um, telcos. And surprisingly, our first three customers were two electrics and, and one um, telephone company back in the 50s who are still members of ours today, but provide um, accounting and billing um, um, engineering software solutions for uh, telephone cooperatives across the country, about 850 members right now. And the reason that I'm having you on the show to talk about North Dakota is, for one thing, you're a very entertaining person to talk to, but you have a <laughs> long history with the cooperatives back in North Dakota. And also you're a fellow Eagles fan, uh, thanks to Carson Wentz, the North Dakota sensation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not too often that your boyfriend plays quarterback for the Eagles, but here we are. <laughs> right. I, I think if I if I did a random calling around North Dakota, I'd find a lot of his girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Big, uh, big Wentz fan and big Bison fan, which, as you know, that's where Wentz played, but um, big championship game tomorrow, so we're excited to watch. Yes. One of the things that I think most people are probably confused about is I just claimed North Dakota has really good internet access. If you just asked a random person on the street, they would probably think North Dakota, being very low density, probably has very poor internet access. Um, So what is going on broadly in North Dakota? Yeah. So, Chris, I think if you ask people randomly, they'd also say that North Dakota um, doesn't have indoor plumbing. So (laughs) I think the perception of our state is a little, uh, we have some issues that are a little bigger than just broadband. But but on the broadband, I think a big part of it is that while the the independent telcos serve about 96% of the geographic area of the state, um, they serve less than 50% of the population. So with the majority of that population living in the highest populated areas that are served by, you know, the big guys like CenturyLink, they just haven't made the same investments in the infrastructure. So the service in those areas, I think, is subpar to the to the very rural areas of the states. And 
So naturally, people think, it, you know, if we, can't, if we don't have great um, Internet access in the Fargo or Grand Forks markets, um, how could someone living in, in Carrington or Rame, North Dakota, um, have access to fiber up to gigabit speeds? So, um, but the truth is that North Dakota has the highest penetration, I think, of broadband in the country um, and the highest percentage of fiber in the country. And um, you know, when we started our project, and, and a little bit of my background is I spent 13 years working for the local telecommunications cooperative here in Carrington. And we went into a CLEC area first that was competing against Quest, um, which is now CenturyLink, obviously. But we just we saw little or no reaction from them at the time. And um, I have a friend who actually worked for Quest back in those days. And he said Quest was very aware of the fiber builds in North Dakota, but um, he told me that the CEO at the time had made the statement, it would be cheaper and better for us to move people to Fargo than to provide them with the same level of service out in those areas. But what surprises me is we haven't really seen that investment still in those, in those bigger populated areas that we have done in the, in the rural areas. So you know, when you talk about geographic area being 96% served by the rural um, telcos, that's a big part of the state, and and I think we're close to 100% fiber to the home in those areas. And it, it is worth noting that a lot of the population of North Dakota is huddled up against the Minnesota border. Um, <laughs> I don't know why that yeah. is. <laughs> so when you say the North Dakota independence, I, I'm curious. So for people who may not have the same background, uh, you know, there's sort of we divide the world between the the big uh, carriers like your CenturyLink in North Dakota would be the major one, and smaller firms that build networks, basically companies that weren't a part of the AT&T, Ma Bell uh, system, I guess. Um, now, but the independents in North Dakota, are they private companies or co-ops or a combination of both? Yeah, it is a combination. We have 18 um, smaller independent telcos in North Dakota. 15 of those are cooperatives, and then three are privately owned and um, you know, some of those areas that, that the independents serve were um, Quest or CenturyLink areas up until, you know, about in 1996, is, um, they sold off a lot of those smaller areas to the, to the co-ops or the, the independents and just kept those major, um, you know, area, more urban areas of the state. Why do you think that North Dakota and, to some extent, other areas around here have been real leaders in, in rural fiber? Um, just to give you a sense, when we, um, we, we just recently made a map of all the co-op fiber in the country, and it's, there's a clear bias in the upper Midwest. You know, another reason for the, our area of the world and this upper Midwest being an early adopter, and this is, this is a per- personal thought, but, um, you know, Optical Solutions was based out of Minnesota, and um, OSI was one of the first access companies to promote fiber to the home. Um, Most people know them today as Calix. They were purchased by Calix in 2006, who continues to be a leader with independent telcos in access. But Keith Carlson um, was the sales manager at OSI at the time. He was actually their second employee and was our sales manager at Dakota Central. And, I mean, I credit Keith with a lot of this, too, because the guy could sell ice to an Eskimo. (laughs) I know he he did because he convinced my CEO, Keith Larson, to do the first build. And, um, you know, Keith Larson, he's an accountant by trade. I'm a sales and marketing person. 
I was all in and he was scared to death. <laughs> but I honestly don't know if our project would have happened without, um, you know, OSI being really um, in this area and Keith's guidance and his ability to sell us on it, at least not that early in the game. It might have been, you know, a few years later. But at the time, there were less than 100 companies in the country building fiber to the home and I believe less than 40 building an IPTV head end. So there was risk to say the least. But um, with OSI up in this area in the, in the Midwest, and like I said, it's Calix now today, but um, they really were promoting fiber to the home and coming out and meeting with all of the companies very early um, in the adoption you know, of, of seeing fiber built across the country. And my impression was that um, he was a salesman in the, the best sense of the word in that one of the reasons that, that he did so well was he always was there when you had problems in the future, too. He didn't just sell you and disappear. Uh, he'd work with you and make sure that the team worked with you to solve their problems. Well, absolutely, and I think that comes down to just caring, right? <laughs> um, Keith, you know, yes, it was a business for him, but, um, you know, you create friendships and I'll say this, Keith is the first person who ever had a dog sleep in my house (laughs) 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 because, you know, you you develop friendships and he'd come out and take my son hunting, but things are going to go wrong and we had things go wrong. I'm not going to say it was smooth sailing. I remember after we had the first, I don't know, three or four businesses turned up in Jamestown and Newman Signs was one of them, one of the largest businesses in Jamestown and all of a sudden their phone went down one day. And what do you, what do you do? And I called Keith, and I didn't know, you know, where the where the issue was at, but he showed up. He didn't just, you know, say try this. I mean, him and their sales engineer, Mark Warshek, at the time, um, they showed up. They drove to Jamestown. They helped our guys. They stayed until it was up and running again. And even later, when we had issues um, with video. And nobody knew, was it a Mirio issue? Was it an amino set-top box issue? Was it Calyx? And again, they showed up. They didn't point fingers. They just said, you know, what can we do to help you figure this out? And I'll forever be grateful for Keith and and the role he played in our project and in, you know, projects across the state. These are the kinds of stories that I think get forgotten. Um, People tend to think of, um, you know, if you look at the United States, I think it's 30% fiber to the home access now, mostly from Verizon. People tend to associate these technologies with the big companies, but it was the small folks, you know, the small companies with people that were going out and solving the problems and making it work that that figured out how to make it work before the big companies even started picking it up. So I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that. And so when we talk about how you have so much fiber investment, is this, is this the result of some sort of massive government program to just throw money at North Dakota? Like, how, how did it come to be? And so much of this was done even before the stimulus. Right. Yeah, I mean, part of it was that we were seeing the demand there, the need for more and better Internet speeds and access. Uh, a lot of the rural companies had access to low-cost capital from our U.S. as previous powers. I know for us at Dakota Central, when we looked at the Jamestown project, RUS had just come out with the broadband loan program. So that allowed us to finance that project. We borrowed about $15.5 million from, um, through that program and then about $3.5 million of cash into that project, which we ended up eventually putting quite a bit more cash in because the take rates were higher than we initially projected. But um, we were one of the first to utilize that program. 
let me just jump in for a second to to note. So this is an RUS borrowing program. So you're you're borrowing money, but you're paying it back. Um, if there's any subsidy, it's probably just on the edges, I would guess. Maybe a a lower interest rate than you would get somewhere else, or a longer term. But in general, this is not free money. You're it's your own money. That's correct. Yep. Um, most of the money that we put into, um, you know, both the CLEC and ILEC projects that we did at the time were through loan programs. I mean, there were some stimulus grants available that, um, and, you know, some were a combination of stimulus and loans, but, but the majority of it, majority of it was, was loans. For the co-ops as well, a lot of it was just reinvesting back in the network and tightening up. We're co-ops. So, how we operate the business is a lot different than you'll see with the big guys. We're not, our, our goal isn't to uh, put money back into shareholders' pockets. Our goal is to provide the best service possible and to keep reinvesting in that network. So right now you're talking over a, a fiber connection. You have fiber to your home. Um, and how long have you had that? I do. So um, we started with Dakota Central. We started with the CLEC build first back in 2004, 2005 in Jamestown. And the plan there was to, um, you know, get our IPTV head in in place and try and get as many customers on the network as we could before we went and build out to our ILAC areas, which is probably the opposite of what um, a lot of companies do. But um, I live in the rural area, so I'm six miles from the closest community. And I've had um, fiber to the home at my house since I think about 2007 and, um, you know, basically live um, right next to our family ranch. And, you know, my husband and I both work from home. We've got um, a 100 meg internet connection to our house. Um, I'm talking on a VoIP phone right now. My um, husband is on the other end of the house talking on his VoIP phone for his company. And, um, yeah, we, couldn't, we could not live and do the jobs that we do. Um, him is a national manager for a crop insurance company that, you know, covers 14 states and manages guys in those states. And, and me as a sales manager for NISC, um, it just wouldn't be possible. Um, you know, and I look at, at, with NISC alone, we've got close to 1,200 employees and 100 of our employees are um, remote. And most of those are in rural areas like I live, um, just from the investment that's put in, been put in with fiber. And you said that you had a greater take rate than was expected, which resulted in you having to pay more. I mean, that makes sense, of course, because this is a large upfront investment. If you have more people connecting, it's probably in that time more than twenty-five or $3,000 um, per home on average. I mean, probably a lot more than that. So, um, but, but just briefly, I'm, I'm curious, even back then, you were seeing a demand in rural areas that exceeded uh, the, again, common wisdom of some people, which would say that people in rural areas just don't care that much about Internet. Yeah, no, at the time, I think our pro forma showed that we had to reach a 40% take rate in the first five years of our build-out. And um, being the marketing manager at the time, our our process for selling the service was to pre-sell it. So we started with a, a marketing campaign several months before the um, fiber was about to go in the ground, and we um, we had a series of marketing campaigns that we went out to the to the homes with, and then actually after the first uh, three touches with those homes, we had 30% had signed up uh, before we put fiber in the ground, and after that, 
uh, myself and our sales manager, um, our account executive at the time, we went around and knocked on every door uh, before that hadn't signed up in front of the in front of the plow crews, and we we got another 15% through that door-to-door marketing. Um, so we were at 45% before we started putting fiber in the ground. Eventually, I think after the first year, in those first areas we built, we were over 50% or close to 60. And I think in Jamestown today, um, that number is in the 70% uh, throughout the community. So, you know, people, you know, um, they wanted the better service, uh, even though at the time, you know, the speeds were less than what we're doing now. But um, there was a there was a demand for it and a need for it. And I think some of that too is we went around to the businesses before we started the residential build. And I spent the first year just working with the commercial customers, trying to get about uh, 500 at the time we talked in access lines still <laughs> to get about 500 access lines signed up with the business community and the thought process was if we could go off the mainline fiber route into those businesses and get get them signed up um, especially those that had a lot of employees that would help us in marketing it from that point forward with the employees taking it at their homes now one of the things that that i'm always interested in is some of the economics of this and my understanding is that the operating costs of the fiber networks is dramatically lower than that of the the copper networks that these telephone co-ops had been maintaining. And so as they're paying off these loans, does that mean that they are just they're really in good shape? I mean, is that is that a big difference for a rural co-op? You know, I think part of it is again that we just were reinvesting back in the network. That's that's the goal of cooperatives is not to pad you know, shareholders' pockets, but to keep putting the money back in the networks. What we saw at the time, too, was a lot of the telcos in North Dakota, including Dakota Central, we had copper plant that needed to be replaced, and um, we were trying to use that plant to deliver DSL service over it and push it further and further out. And and when you looked at it, it was cheaper to replace that copper with fiber than to put uh, more copper in the ground. And obviously, for long-term reasons, fiber was the best solution anyway with just having to change out the electronics at the end of it as the need for more speed demands were coming. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, when you looked at the overall cost of the network, it it was better to put in fiber versus the copper that we had in the ground. Well, there's one other thing that I remember, and you may have still been um, with Dakota Central at that time, but I remember seeing a press release touting North Dakota, and I think it was a combination of Dactel and Dickey, but I, I could be wrong, having the largest fiber-to-the-home network in the world at more than 10,000 square miles. I would say the first three in the state to really invest in fiber were Dakota Central, Dickey Rural Networks, and um, and back in steel. And so with Dakota Central and Dickey Rural, um, basically we kind of border each other right up to that just south of the Jamestown area. And both, you know, progressive companies, and I would say statewide you see that. It was, you know, really good cooperative leadership in the state. And having worked for um, Dakota Central for that many years and then going to work for Pivot and now NISC and kind of traveling the country meeting with other co-ops, one thing that stood out to me over the years is that um, not not everywhere do you see how companies work together like we do in the upper Midwest, and not just North Dakota, but Minnesota, South Dakota, Wisconsin. Um, in our state, we have meetings several times a year with different groups from every company. So the CEO level, the plant managers have a meeting where they get together a couple times a year, the marketing managers. 
there's a lot of constant sharing of information and helping each other. And, you know, some of that probably comes from building and owning the Dakota Carrier Network, our state fiber network, but just good vision from the board of directors to leadership and the employees buying into the projects has made a big difference. But, um, yes, that 10,000 square miles from a geographic standpoint, um, I believe it, it's, it was the largest build and maybe still is today, but at least at that time in the country. And so when you, given your, your history in, in North Dakota and the fact that you ha- do travel around the country, you have relationships with cooperatives everywhere, when you hear people claim, and I'm just going to make this up, I'm not quoting anyone specifically, but it's true of the sentiment of many people out of Washington, D.C., that we can't afford to bring fiber to everyone in rural America and that it's just cost prohibitive. We have to go with some kind of wireless. Um, you know, How do you react based on knowing what has already been done in North Dakota? Yeah, well, I think part of it is we can't afford not to. <laughs> And, and wireless is a great solution in in some areas, um, but for long-term best investment, I don't know that wireless has the reach or will that that the needs are going to be, especially for people working at home. And you know, we we saw an out migration in our state about the time we were doing our fiber build. I was actually interviewed for a Fargo Forum article called "Saving North Dakota." I mean, the re- reality is the young people are moving out, and the uh, elderly are dying. <laughs> We were seeing uh, just an outflux of people. Now, you know, shortly after that, we had the oil boom, and we saw things happen in western North Dakota that we hadn't seen in a long time. And I talked about, at that time, going down to the, the urban areas and serving those makes the most sense. You know, what's going to happen to all of these rural areas? Because the honest truth is, where does your energy come from? Where does your food come from? I mean, it's it's important that they have those same level of services that the urban area is, or urban areas do, which, you know, was the whole purpose of universal service from the time it started was equal access everywhere. It can be done. Yes, we obviously the USF fund has helped that um, in reinvesting back in those networks. But I think the bigger thing is just um, you know having the fortitude and the guts to go out and do it, and um, tightening up and making sure you can cash flow. And part of that for our project, too, was not going out and hiring a lot of people. And you'll see that with some companies and, and especially with the bigger guys. They do a project like this and go out and hire 20, 30, 40 people. We doubled the size of our company and hired five employees. <laughs> and, um, you know, the purpose at the time was everybody's going to have to work harder because we know it's going to be really crazy for the first, you know, five, six, seven years here. But at some point, the network is going to be built, and it's going to be as efficient or more efficient than it's ever been. And at that point, you can't afford to have the overhead that you would have if you went out and doubled your employee base at the same time as trying to build a fiber-to-home network. That we asked a lot of our team <laughs> um, and the managers, and you know everyone put in put in probably more time than even was expected. But when it's done, I still to this day will say it was the you know will always be one of the highlights of my career. And and there's nothing more fun than seeing a project like that through from start to finish and and having it be successful. That's a it's a very good reality check to remember that um, you know I can. Do every I can look from afar and say, "Wow, look at all this that was done!" But it's good to appreciate that there's a lot of hard days that people had to put in uh, to make it happen. A lot of hard days and a lot of help, leaning on um, even vendor partners. Um, I remember 
filling out IPTV content contracts, and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and sitting sitting at a card table in my living room, um, you know, from at after the kids would go to bed at 10 o'clock at night until midnight, and actually texting or calling a vendor who's up watching hockey saying, what do I do here? How do I do this? And, um, you know, helped just walk you through it. So um, definitely it takes a team, but um, can be done. Right. And that's it's yet another good reminder as well that when people think, oh, these things are so complicated and this and that, you know, um, you can figure it out. And um, and most mistakes will be made, and you'll deal with them and move along. Um, you know, find me any network that hasn't made mistakes in being built. But I really appreciate uh, all the the time you've given us to tell us about what's going on there. Uh, I've been long wanting to make sure people were aware that North Dakota had such incredible connectivity as a, just a sense that, you know, if we can build fiber to the home in North Dakota and we can build it in a number of other places as well with co-ops in such a cost-effective manner, this idea that we just have to abandon rural America to poor broadband is, is clearly farcical. Yeah, I mean, the long term, we've got to make those long-term investments and the demand for speed and capacity is going to continually increase. We know that. Um, and if you want to provide the opportunities, like I said, working um, remotely today, uh, both my husband and I, um, I, I don't know that we would have been able to continue to live where we live um, if we didn't have fiber to our house. In fact, I'm confident that we couldn't. And that's what you're going to see. If we don't invest in these rural areas, people are going to continue to, to move out to find, you know, what serves them. And it's not, just, it's not just the parents. Let's be honest. The kids are driving a lot of this today. Um, when my three kids are all home and they're streaming Netflix or they're doing school projects online, it doesn't seem like, or it seems like there, there isn't anything they do anymore that doesn't touch technology. And so, you know, that need is, is greater today than it's ever been. It's going to continue to increase. Right. And I'll just say that even if, even if there's people living in cities who think, I just don't care about those rural areas, keep in mind that we have 100 senators. And if those 100 senators um, are broken down so that people only live in cities, um, that means that basically all the political power will be with the tiny minority of people who don't care about the Internet, who live in the middle of, of um, the country, basically. Absolutely. And it, it is surprising today that when you look at, I mean, North Dakota is an example, but I think we see it across the country. It is those you know, urban areas, I mean, the reality is we're seeing better fiber build in the rural areas than the, the urban areas. And, um, you know, while there are cable companies that are, are picking up the slack there, but we, we aren't seeing as big of um, movement. And I, I speak probably for North Dakota more than anywhere. Um, I definitely have better access right here than, than you'll find in Fargo. Yeah, or that I can get. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, really. Yes. So, well, thank you for coming on the show, and we look forward to catching up with you again in the future. Thanks, Chris. That was Christopher with Robin Anderson from National Information Systems Cooperative in North Dakota. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. Access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Never miss out on our original research? Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 288 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs> <laughs>